Uh, hello and welcome everyone to the December 2022 Variant Perception Market Outlook and Discussion Call. Uh, so as usual uh, with this format, we'll be uh, talking through some of the nuances and uh, follow-up questions from uh, recent reports over the past month, uh, talking a bit about what's changed in terms of our indicators and um, market opportunities. And if you have any uh, questions, uh, that arise uh, through the call, please use the Q&A function uh, on Zoom webinar, or you can email uh, questions to us at sales at variantperception.com. And just as a final kind of uh, admin point, um, so this will be the last call uh, for this year. Uh, we're currently working on the 2023 themes report that should uh, come out either end of next week or beginning of the week after, after which uh, we will be on uh uh, Christmas break as well, and then uh, the publication schedule essentially resume uh, basically beginning of uh, January. And uh, yeah, with that, uh, so we prepared a few slides and, you know, as usual, we'll try and use the portal as well uh, to try and cover some of the more nuanced points. So, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that's obviously happened versus last month is that our U.S. recession signal has now triggered. Uh, you know, obviously the report was put out on December the 1st. Uh, the main things driving the signal has been uh, in, an increase in hard data stress to go along with the soft data stress that we've uh, seen pretty much for the entirety of the second half uh, of 2022. And well, in fact, it kind of already started from the beginning of the year and it's really been uh, quite persistent. Um, so now the way we think about our recession signal is, is that it's essentially a one zero regime. So we're basically now shifted from a normal regime into a recessionary regime. And what that means is in the recessionary regime, you'll generally see a lot more risk of positive feedback loops uh, developing between the real economy and markets and between hard data and soft data. So this is a, a particularly uh, heightened level of risk uh, that we're in for asset prices. And th that's really what the model is designed to do. And the way this model is built is to try and pick up on these feedback loops. Um, so in addition to these regime shifts, you know, most of our cyclical leading indicators obviously still, you know, updating and running, and they're all still at, at pretty poor levels. Um, so overall, we would classify this as basically the worst possible um, macro environment for taking risk uh, for equities and so forth that our tools can have. So from here, really the next marginal shift it will necessarily be like, it, it will, the, the, uh, the indicators will get better because at this point, every single thing that can be bad in our indicators are basically bad. Um, now to provide some context for this, what we did with the report is we've obviously laid out uh, the previous signal triggers to give some context around uh, what's going on because the, the natural follow-up questions to this is one is, what's the probability that the signal is wrong? And then two, how much is discounted into prices? And, and three is, um, you know, given the path dependence of recessions, what are the things to watch out for on a forward-looking basis? Um, so in terms of the first thing, in terms of whether we think the signal is right or wrong, uh, we actually have quite a high level of conviction that the signal is correct. Um, we've had a lot of questions around the labor market and consumers uh, from clients. Obviously, we put some of the most uh, common uh, questions in the report this week. So I feel like we've been doing a good job of debunking um, you know, all the misunderstandings out there around um, data behavior into recessions. And, and obviously we've shown in the reports that you know, you, labor market data is heavily revised at the turning points. 
you're going to see it two or three months late. And, you know, even within labor markets, you know, the challenger job cuts, some of the initial claims by states, these things are all obviously deteriorating as well. And on the consumer, again, the points we were making was that if you actually follow higher frequency, uh, you know, more real-time data, the consumer really does, um, there's more signs of stress right now, whereas a lot of the focus is on where data has been. Just just bear in mind, a lot of the data releases right now, you're basically seeing a September, October numbers. So a lot of the earnings calls and so forth, you know, there's a lot of backward looking um, things about where things were, but the signal obviously only just triggered. So really the point is that it's November, we think is probably the first month where the activity started to really deteriorate. And then from here, it'll probably start to get much worse uh, in December and January. And it'll become more obvious in Q1 as, um, you know, obviously if our models are right, the data starts deteriorating. Uh, the key thing I would point out here is that it's a quite interesting combination of where some of our main indicators are compared to previous signal triggers in the top right-hand chart, uh, top right-hand table here, where the excess equity measure has basically never been lower on the, on the recession trigger. The US lead indicator is negative and the market bottom uh, checklist actually already uh, decent, but not quite filled. Um, so overall, it makes us still feel uh, pretty um, confident that there will be further downside from here. And obviously, uh, you know, on the next slide, I'll show the behavior into recessions. Uh, but we would point out, though, for example, when has basically the signal not worked in terms of helping you avoid asset price drawdown? So the 1990 is a good example of when the signal was a bit late. You can see the real recession was in July. Um, you know, our model really only triggered 1st of October. So it assumed September was the first month of recession. And then at, at that point, most of the market bond checklist was in place. The, the U.S. leading indicator was actually positive. And the excess equity was also um, actually positive. So that was actually just a low. And then equally in 2020, uh, you know, the market bond checklist wasn't quite in place. But obviously we know that was like a huge um, policy response in March. You know, the Fed was buying high yield, right? Got, you know, crossover debt. You know, they were the policy stimulus had kicked in, but also that was a point when uh, leading indicators weren't actually in that bad a shape coming in, right? The the, the US LA was actually marginally positive, and excess equity was already actually quite high uh, by then. So I think that's really the big difference this time around. Where you know, in the bottom right hand chart here, we can see just how terrible the excess equity measures look and the fact that the uh, US growth is also also down here. So that's why overall, you know, we're, we've, we feel pretty uh, confident in that, in the signal behavior, uh, in the prediction that the economy is really going to slow down. And it's probably going to be quite a deep uh, slowdown just based on where, uh, just, just how low the level of these um, LEIs are uh, right now. So, so, you know, so Tian, just very quickly, we had a question just in reference to the report we released today, calling for a, a deep downturn as predicted by LEIs. Um, I guess the, the natural question is, you know, does this most resemble the kind of 2001, 2008 style drawdown, um, just given where LEIs are today? And, you know, the fact that we've, you know, we've got this table here where we're tracking all of the different things that we are watching, right? Like the market bottoms checklist, uh, US LEI, liquidity conditions, and so forth. I guess the, the follow-up question to that is, you know, in terms of when we get bullish from there, um, is it a case of essentially waiting for each of these things to turn up? Or is it more kind of 
buying in phases, i.e., you know, I think what really helped during the 2020 lockdown is, you know, as you mentioned, we saw the policymaker panic 23rd of March when Fed started buying uh, crossover debt. That was kind of the, the phase one. And phase two was kind of waiting for some of these uh, tactical signals to really start to um, to turn up. Um, and then phase three was really the, the LEI upturn. Um, and I think that was a good sequencing. So how would you um, thread all of these different things together where leading indicators are incredibly bearish and, you know, naturally that should, you know, you can kind of see the levels there, right? They're back to kind of to that going to GFC lows. Um, how would you think of the sequencing through 2023 based on that? Yeah, so I think, um, well, I think when we say a deep drawn out recession, um, to me, it just feels a bit more like, it, it it might be more like a 2001 style setup, right? Rather than OA, like a, rather than OA, like a crazy deleveraging event, right? There's obviously a couple of things that is a bit different. Bank balance sheets are not in as crazy a shape uh, this time around. You know, the, the, obviously we've seen the excess is really going to start coming out. Um, tech, you know, these higher duration areas, basically business models that just depended on low interest rates, right? So basically using free money to acquire customers. And now the pressure's on to, to make profits. And that was obviously the whole point of that whole age of scarcity thematic report we put out using the kind of Minsky credit cycles. Uh, uh, so, so I think, you know, if there's truly a, a um, credit unwind event, then that's what's going to cause it to be drawn out. Um, you know, the, the setup, I think the reason we want to say this is probably going to be a, a deeper initial recession right now is because everything I've seen from self side bullish bracket stuff, everyone's like, okay, it's next 12 months, it's gonna be a shallow recession. You know, it probably hits sometime in Q2, Q, sometime in Q3, Q4, right? That's just kind of, that feels more like what the consensus is at. And, um, you know, if we're already seeing these feedback loops kick in, then the Fed's gonna be hiking into this downturn and for pretty much the first half of next year, right? Obviously they do 50 uh, this month, then they do 25 in Fed, 25 in March. That gets us to the five, um, which is kind of what Fed funds are pricing in. So they're going to be hiking whilst the economy is slowing. And I think that's which really what's going to exacerbate the downturns. And obviously, even anecdotally, right, the job loss is really starting to pick up. Obviously, there's some you know, nice data, newer data sources like you know, layoffs.fy, right? You can scrape, and there's a lot of data showing that the layoffs are really picking up. So if the Fed keeps hiking into it, they're going to really be exacerbating that initial slowdown. In addition to basically the forward perfect reversing, right? Which obviously we've been tracking that theme, I think, pretty well for our, now. That's a real big concern, right? That's like a big inventory unwind cycle uh, that's coming at a time when durable goods consumption, service consumption, they're all well above trend, right? Where you're seeing across the board, um, across the income spectrum, all the surveys showing the pickup in stress. So I think that's a real concern where the policymakers could take a while before they realize. Uh, that they can do something about it, right? They painted themselves in more into a corner right now with the whole inflation credibility thing. And obviously, we've talked about this on previous calls, you know, on the um, on the what we got right and wrong, right? Where we talked about the Volcker analogy and how, you know, you can't forget the most important thing is quote unquote inflation credibility, right? Because once you lose it, um, you know, monetary policy is time inconsistent, right? So once you lose uh, inflation credibility, you can't get it back. So because they kind of paint themselves in the corner, it's going to be quite hard for the Fed to react quickly here. And then so, you know, I think that's a real concern where they're going to potentially, you're going to potentially just have six months of the economy just unwinding itself before the Fed 
has some room to do something about it. And at, at that point, the, the feedback loops are probably very strong, right? And that's the, that's the real concern. So I think unless we get some kind of major policy panic, like immediately, um, it does look um, pretty, uh, pre pretty worrying as a setup. Um, now, in, in terms of the, the, the game plan for uh, when to get back in, again, I think the pragmatic choice is a bit like what we laid out in 2020, right? You want to do it in three phases. So the first one is the, the first one is you probably want to react to the policymaker panic, right? Um, whichever, it, obviously it's very hard ex ante to know what exact shape it looks like. You know, it's a little bit like you know it when you see it, right? So in, in March, 2020, it was clearly a game changer to be for the Fed to be intervening in the corporate debt markets directly. So this time around, presumably they will need to do something similar, maybe even more so they, they have some way of stepping in, even guaranteeing like household, household loans, right? For like all we, for we know, like there's a, you know, consumer credit or some kind of backstop or something like that, right? That, you know, some, something that you, even more exaggerates and accentuates the kind of um, the theme of the politicization of credit, right? Which again is something we put in the age of scarcity report. Um, and obviously linked to that will be the infrastructure and so forth. So I think the first one is at some point you'll get a big policymaker panic. And then the second one is we'll probably need to be responsive to, again, uh, trading signals. And this is where, you know, I think this is where the portal and, and the, the aggregate of all the signals comes in, right? You should, you know, you often get a lot of these emergent behaviors where at this point we're probably trapped, you know, we're going to have thousands of signals across every asset class. And obviously, as we put the single stocks on there, it's going to be even more. So you should be able to see these very, very emergent um, kind of true capitulation points when you get these absolutely huge spikes in, in just the percentage of active buy signals that go off. So I think these things would then be, you know, your first response is probably the policymaker panic to, to kind of initially get back, start getting back in. And then you want to probably then see if it's confirmed by like a huge amount of these buy signals. And then your final confirmation is you want the LEIs to um, kind of turn back up, right? But obviously, by definition, these all these lead indicators are regime indicators. It's six to 12 month outlook. You know, it's, it's only monthly data. So it's not going to be exact on timing. And especially at the bottom, it's going to be really volatile. So I would view this as maybe like the final piece, at which point then you're max long, right? So when the LEI turns, you probably you almost certainly would have already had the initial policymaker big announcement that is intervening. And then you get the confirmation of the capitulation with the price action, right? The emergent behavior. And then you'll and then the LEI is confirming. And then when all three are in place, that's probably the, the max bull, uh, max kind of risk on uh moment. And then presume and then that'll also be a point where the coincident lagging data will still be looking really ugly. Right. So so that that's kind of uh the plan. Um, but obviously I'm not sure about the sequencing, how quickly it'll happen compared to say 2020, obviously happened very, very quickly. Um, but you know, it, it could it could take a while this time. Yeah, we we did actually have a question and thinking more about the the sequencing issue because you know, as Ali I suggest, it's going to be a theme for at least the first half of next year. But uh, the question was more on whether things like excess liquidity can snap back a lot harder because obviously where it is right now, the red line in the bottom right chart is pretty much as low as it's ever been. And you know, in terms of what excess liquidity is, it's narrow money growth minus inflation, minus economic growth, right? So now that we've seen things like higher inflation needing indicator really roll over pretty hard, um, do you think that can bring forward the sequencing and therefore things like excess liquidity turn more positive, more quicker than, you know, more quickly than we expect? And, you know, quite possibly if, as we know, the Fed has never ended um, its hiking cycle until the real policy rate is positive. So maybe inflation rolls 
harder relative to our LEI. Uh, do you think that's um, that's a strong possibility in terms of our uh, our risk on sequencing? I, you know, this could play out a lot quicker than expected by LEIs. So uh, the inflation piece will definitely help. So, so again, I think that the whole point of the ex excess equity is it's inherently contrarian, right? So even if the signal mechanically bounces back a little bit, again, the intuition is we're looking for situations where essentially money growth is starting to pick up a lot and pick up so much that the money growth exceeds the needs of the real economy, exceeds the needs of inflation, and therefore is excess and supports asset prices. So really it needs to go positive first and then snap back, right? So you can see, um, even if inflation comes off, you would really need either growth to absolutely collapse or you would take away a massive negative number. Otherwise, I don't see how it happens because usually the, the real big driver of excess liquidity, the biggest moving piece is actually money growth, right? That's the one that can go to 30% growth real fast, right? Um, and that piece is clearly a contingent on policy, on animal spirits, on you know, credit availability, on credit spreads. Um, and and that, so that piece, it, there's, there's zero signs that piece is going to do well, right? Like, I know we've done a lot of these studies where, the, where essentially in credit, supply leads demand because what actually happens is uh, essentially the Fed does something and then the banks suddenly are flush with financing and then they start calling up people going, hey, can you please take this loan off me because I can go to the Fed window or maybe I'm in Europe and I go to the ECB. I take my tier, you know, TLTR or whatever and then I just force it out the door just so I can do carry trades, right? So actually loan demand and loan growth lag supply in, in most cycles. So unless something you know, magical happens with animal spirits that cause long credit demand, these things to pick up, that you get the organic private sector money growth, you know, it, it's probably, obviously, you know, the second derivative these things can turn, but you, you really need it to go positive, right? And I think that's the challenge um, right now. But obviously, we'll, we'll see, but, you know, looking at it right now, I think that the big concern is still the historical sequencing is you need like a decent amount of easing before money growth really responds if you've allowed the system to start delevering itself, right? And obviously we're seeing some of the initial signs. This is the whole Minsky credit cycle when you go Ponzi phase, right? So whether you, whatever you think of, you know, crypto or, you know, clearly when FTX start going down, right? There's signs of it, right? Obviously we know the tons of startups and these tech businesses, right? They, they need cash flow now. And in this environment, it's not going to be as easy to get a financing. Um, so I, I think, you know, because you've already allowed the system to start unwinding itself, it, it, it's probably going to be quite hard to just instantly turn around, right? Because once the systems, once you start marking down, then obviously, you, then you start having a knock-on effect on essentially uh, investor appetite, also long office appetites, and then banks tighten, you know, tighten their land, the standards they're willing to make on the loans, and then, and then it, it kind of takes a while to play out. So you know, intu intuitively, I don't think it, it can turn that quickly, but obviously that's the reason we have all these models, right? We're not going to, you know, it's not finger in the air. The whole idea is we sit, we observe, we let the models play out, we see whether we're trading signals aligned, and then hopefully when they align, we can react to it. But, you know, as of right now, it, it does look pretty, pretty poor. Um, you know, what I'm definitely very focused on in, in the coming weeks is, you know, obviously we had initial claims numbers today, right? Like, as, you know, the, the diffusion of initial claims is very important, right? In a lot of key states, it's still going up. Um, but really, we want to just confirm that the labor market, the, the reliable labor market data, the more reliable ones are showing the deterioration in the coming kind of four to six weeks. And you probably want to see if the those higher frequency consumer surveys are confirming. 
right? Because I think the biggest piece that we're probably going to be worried about right now is this consumer resilience narrative. Obviously, we have all the data on excess savings. We can see the distribution, right? It does look like the bottom half of the income distribution are really struggling. But, you know, we probably need to get that confirmed um, a, a bit more, right? Like the key is that distributional consequence means you probably not got as big a buffer um, as people think. So I think those are the two things that I'm watching um, to, to really uh, confirm this. Um, but, but yeah, so, so the main takeaway is the signal's triggered. Um, I think, you know, I, I think we have a reasonable level of conviction on this signal and on the behavior of markets and the economy into it. The main concern is how big the policy pivot will be and when it comes. But looking at it right now, if it doesn't come quickly, then I think it's going to be quite bad. Uh, in terms of asset class implications, I think this is a really interesting one because clearly no two recessions are different and it's very um, path dependent in, in terms of policy. So like the big change this time is obviously bonds have not rallied a lot, clearly due to the inflation point. And obviously that's where we think the upside is going to there'll be a, where the upside is going to be. But the other really weird behavior this time is the dollar has already rallied so much. Um, obviously, even with the recent drawdown, right, into the recession, that the dollar behavior might might be a bit different um, this time around. Um, you know, normally the dollar rallies due to the safe haven flows, but that basically only worked historically. And we have the statistical relationship because Usually the U.S. is the main source of global demand. So when the U.S. goes into recession, it drags everyone else in the world down with them. And then the rest of the world starts flooding the U.S. with, with the money uh, and then starts buying up like treasuries and stuff, stuff like that, right? And then that's kind of normally the flow. The problem in 2022 is China, Europe already been in recession for, this year, for basically most of this year. So the safe haven flows to the U.S. has basically already you know, happened, right? People already been getting that money out of those those um those economies so then how much more um of that is is there and obviously with china reopening uh you know th th at least there will be a stabilization i mean it'll probably be quite hard for china to avoid kind of the global headwinds but you know it's they could go like 2008 2009 style right obviously it looks very unlikely but if they end up doing something like 0809 with a huge stimulus then clearly then china can uh you know, we can just, you know, just if you just visualize it, right? I mean, you, if, if you really go big, then then clearly that, that can impact um, the recovery. So I think a lot depends on the, the China, um, how, how the policy response is. But obviously what we can see on a global scale is basically the US impulse, again, second derivative is still very bad, right? Like fiscal policy just cannot replicate what it was a year ago in terms of just how big that stimulus is uh, in aggregate. So I think that that's a bit of the, uh, a, a bit of, the, you know, that that's the concern, right? It, you you also need China to kind of go really big, uh, to, to kind of help their own cycle and arrest the global cycle. Which again, it doesn't look like she and everyone wants to do that, right? It is reopening, you know. Obviously, all the rumors five percent GDP, but are they willing to also really go big and you know, ignore some of the talk around um, deleveraging? Obviously, they, they, you know, if a lot of things right now is about buffering the worst impacts, right? Like they're supporting the home builders supporting real estate, but are they willing to actually just, you know, flood the system with liquidity again, like before? Probably not. But would they be willing to do, say, massive fiscal-led, you know, infrastructure-style, you know, you know, investment into, like, renewables, electrification, and send, right, just part even more money into it, potentially, right? That could be another shape um, that, that it goes. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely one to, to watch. But that divergence suggests the dollar is kind of the biggest 
um, question mark this time around in terms of the behavior um, in, in a recession. Um, and obviously the whole point is, and we put in the report is to show that yes, you know, even though there's been a decent drawdown into the signal, usually there's still quite, you know, there will be on a forward looking basis, there's still uh, room to go. Now, again, when we when you dig into it though, it won't happen in a straight line, right? So normally the behavior in previous recessions is even on the EVA recession, there's a huge amount of incredulous um, kind of non-belief in the um in, in this in the recession signal. And then just like all you gotta just go scan Bloomberg most read, right? There'll be lots of stories about oh, you know, the labor market, look at how good the payrolls are, look at how low unemployment is, look at these things, right? And you know, this doesn't look like recession. So I think it takes a so even on the three months forward basis, it's not, you know, if anything, like things just go sideways, if not actually um, reverse slightly, but it's really kind of, you know, then like in six to nine months, if the thing's correct, then the bottom falls out, right? Even, so I was looking at even 08, yeah. you know, the market actually holds up reasonably well for like the first half of 08. And it's really only later on when, when suddenly it becomes obvious, then, um, then, then the kind of bottom falls out. So um, yeah, as, as of right now, um, you know, I think the dollar is probably the, the by far the biggest concern. And obviously in the report, we put in, um, you know, where the, the, where the long and short candidates are, you know, obviously in the top right. Um, the one area I think given our age of scarcity report, the whole CapEx super cycle, infrastructure super cycle is, you know, I think out of this downturn, that'll be like a, a big driver of the sector rotation. That's where kind of the real money is going to be going. That's where like the big patient money is going to be going as well. So I think that'll be a big um that'll be a big feature of this recession and the rotation that goes underneath, right? Um, obviously, we'll see how it plays out. But the whole point of that age of scarcity report was, you know, we think this is part of a, a kind of 10-year reversal trend, you know, away from SaaS, cloud, tech, right? A lot of these things backing towards like the, the hard stuff because we're in the situation where the world has run out of all the hard stuff we need. And it turns out productivity growth is the other side of the coin too, essentially energy prices. And so until that's solved, like you're not going to get as much of all these productivity enhancing sectors doing well. So, um, so, so Tian, heading into the recession now, uh, for clients that, that still need to hold some equity exposure, do you think it still makes sense to uh, hold on to energy exposure? You know, I've been writing about the structural thesis for a long time. And then um, also perhaps holding some of these, you know, quote unquote quality names, because... Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen play out this year is that, you know, quality has done pretty poorly, right? It was high duration at the start of the year. Um, you know, a lot of these companies, whilst they were still churning out uh, good cash flows, um, you just saw a huge re-rating. So do you think it makes sense going into the recession to hold on to energy and quality as um, as kind of these core exposures, just, you know, in terms of if you had to hold something, do you think those are the areas to hide out? Yeah, well, I think we should probably clarify what we mean. I think we've generally said we've defined quality as profitability, mm. right? That's generally how we've defined it. But I think the those um those like Russell MSCI quality yeah, indices yeah. define a bit different, right? So yeah, so I, I would say I think yeah, profitability clearly makes sense, right? Like again, going back to the bigger theme, this is whole the whole point is like credit is is um more expensive and less available. So that's the environment where cash flow is needed. You're gonna need to actually survive and retain earnings. Right, or you better hope you just close the funding round. You have a lot of termed out debt um, to to kind of get you through. Right, I think that's the the challenge. So I think cash flow, um, profitability, those things can be important. Obviously, even even on our model here, we can see down here, right, food, bath, tobacco, you know, household products, 
I think actually, I think these, some of these also align with our capital cycle scarcity, right? So like the stuff down here is actually pretty good. Um, I think utilities is the one because it's just so poor on our capital capital cycle um, model. We probably don't want to go there, right? I mean, what's the ranking now? No. Yeah, so I, you know, obviously there's a lot of Latin food products. Yeah. No. yeah, on the on the chart on the right, you just see a lot of U.S. utilities there. I think also what's complicating it as well, as well as a, a lot of these guys are in quite monopolistic areas, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Would you say the capital cycle matters less on that front? Yeah. So, so in so that that's the problem, right? So if we're truly going to a, a, a downturn, the capital scare sectors, if they got to like roll over their debt, watch just go bust because credit shuts off for everyone. So that that's definitely a bit of a concern as well now. Um, I think we'll, I think we'll probably need to do some more work on it and, and put it in the themes, right? I, I like for me, I do think the stuff linked to infrastructure, Kybex supercycle, the stuff upstream to that, like those seem really well positioned to be the main beneficiary of kind of the regime we're moving to. So so that seems like a natural area. You, you probably don't want to get um, kind of lose it too much. Um, and obviously just the, the defensive, usual defensives, that's not utilities essentially, right? It's kind of what we're saying. I think those probably are, are the safest pieces. Um, yeah. Yeah, so obviously uh, this is just repeat some of the, the key charts. And yeah, just to the point about even the median, you know, the top right-hand chart here, right? Just even where the median LEI is, is the, again, this is pushed forward by six months already, right? So like, you know, it's pretty... You know, it's a pretty uh, crazy low levels. So, um, yeah, the, okay, yeah. And obviously, we also put this in a report today where in Europe, the inflation LEI is peaking, but it's, you're not, you've not seen the same rollover. So there's actually a bit of a gap uh, between Europe and US. So again, overall, the, um, in terms of supporting the idea of like US fixed income as a place to hide out and you uh, seems seem just um, a, a bit more reasonable. Yeah, so in terms of the asset allocation discussion, obviously, we covered this dollar already. I mean, that, that these are kind of the concerns we have in terms of how this recession might be different, or how asset prices are kind of looking different to what, what would normally be expected. So I think inflation is a big one where, yes, we know that inflation LAI is going to roll over. You know, we know that there's going to be a demand destruction in a recession, but the market seems to have fully priced it already. Right. If you just look at where the, you know, especially now with the layers move where the last is, right? The entire curve's traded off in terms of one year, one year, one year, four, and so forth, the red line. You know, everything's trading on like a two and a half kind of handle. And this isn't necessarily fully in line with uh just even the mechanical slowing you would expect in US inflation, right? Like it's still gonna take a while for, for it to kind of uh truly come off. And obviously we know structurally on the shelter side, the, the lagging relationship is still a problem. Obviously, we know this is due to the um the, the shelter moratorium, RAM moratorium, so it's distorted a bit, but the fact this is going up isn't the best sign. Um, so it feels a bit like there's just very little pricing to the inflation swap uh, kind of term structure in terms of inflation risk now. But we know structurally there's like obviously a ton of risk, right, that we put in there. So, um, so yeah, do you think that's, yeah. we haven't really got into the, the fixed income use too much, but do you think that's the main bear thesis to our max overweight in fixed income duration? Is it that, perhaps inflation um, will be a lot more elevated relative to what consensus expects. And maybe there's potential for another bed hawkish surprise, um, you know, particularly if they do focus on lagging data, which still looks quite resilient. 
Um, I don't know. Are there are there any other bear risks to our to our thesis beyond just inflation? Yeah, I mean, this is the other one, right? We've generally shown this chart quite a lot in terms of if we start, if the Fed starts to lose control of time premium. But usually losing control of time premium needs to be able to really be worried the Fed isn't taking inflation seriously. And obviously, they've done a very good job of pushing back um, against that. So this is kind of less of a, slightly less of a concern. I think, yeah, this is a tricky part where structurally, I do think our core view is still we're moving to the next decade is just going to be a higher equilibrium level of where rates should be because there'll be a higher equilibrium level where inflation is, mainly because you know we're going to be living in a much more government-dominated um, kind of economic system, right? Both fiscal, monetary, government intervention, and you know, government giving loan guarantees, um, right? We put in the report, right? You know, the 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 Department of Energy guaranteeing three hundred fifty billion dollars worth of renewable energy loans. You know, you can do that here. You know, then you can go somewhere else and guarantee it for like you know inequality right or to you know help minorities or help you know you know whichever kind of class right you can start guaranteeing loans for that like all the doors open right so you, you know all these things are probably coming um and and the catalyst to get those passed is obviously a big economic downturn so so i think that the issue is like structurally we're probably going to be facing a higher equilibrium level of rates but in the meantime you probably do get the demand destruction that and then the the kind of flight to safety and it's a question where that money goes in that flight to safety um and you know given given that equities haven't really sold off that much it seems reasonable to think that that we just hold bonds um you know let get the recession scare get the big bond rally get the fed uh shifting policy back down and then that's the moment you kind of want to just get get out of it um again so but yeah I, that's definitely the concern right like in, in a way you don't necessarily have to go that long duration given the shape of the curve right now right so you know, it's it's probably not, and that's do yeah. So it's it's actually not terrible, not that big a deal if you just want to go park it, even in money market funds, right? Or just park it in one year or two year, and and just sit on it as well, and just reduce that exposure, just sit on the duration, pick up your carry, hold it to maturity, or, or just you know reduce the rate exposure. That's also you know a reasonable thing, right? Obviously, we've kept it overweight on cash as well, so I think it's just a case of um, trying to reduce the exposure and volatility of your portfolio. And then waiting for things to line up again to allocate back in. You know, this is you know, this is something else that's very interesting, right? Like in terms of where tips and two-year real is, you're getting to a point where this is pretty, you know, this is a pretty attractive level, right? In terms of where real yields are to actually to, to um to kind of start building position there. So um yeah, yeah I, mean, I think yeah, I think, I, think yeah. I struggle with with tips. Um, you know, we put in the report, I think, a couple of weeks ago where um, you know, if you look at tips versus nominals and, you know, you just plot the ratio of total returns of those two, they pretty much perfectly track break-evens, right? So to me, where we see so much stuff line up for duration and the nominal side of it, I would much prefer to, to hold that, right, as opposed to tips. Where I, st I, I still think that, um, you know, obviously where real yields are, they, they do look attractive, but I think we have to also acknowledge the fact that um, you know, as we head into this kind of, you know, market narrative shift towards a recession scare, the issue with tips is also that there is uh, liquidity risk, particularly at the shorter end, um, where you do see, you know, we saw in 2020, you do see that kind of um, that awkward <laughs> um, dislocation in markets. So to the extent that people can hold through that and, um, you know, perhaps are not as sensitive to those, um, you know, daily moves, I think, yeah, it does make sense as kind of a cash plus alternative. But um, in terms of a, um, a bigger allocation, I would be much more um, 
much more positive on the uh, on the nominal side of things. Uh, mm. We're getting to um, uh, 35 minutes now. I don't know, Tian, if there's anything else you want to cover. Uh, yeah, what, what do we have else on the point here? Oh, yeah, so on the curve, right? Yeah, so given, given how inverted the curve is. So again, um, historically, the behavior is the market tends to front run the shift in in policy normally by about well, well up to even six months right especially the start of a recession so i think expecting the curve to start to steepen from here is is not a bad call right but as you know even you can see from the forward chart if you look at the carry like the, the main problem the main problem is like the carry for this trade is, is like dreadful right it's, it's going to cost a lot for you to just put this on uh just put a steep note right now and obviously the biggest move is going to come once the the fed actually you know starts um, entertaining the idea of a cut, right? So obviously on current trajectories, if the Fed can be hiking for the first half, it might not even, you know, it, it might not work immediately, but the historical behavior suggests that twos and stuff should start to front run and then start to price it in. Um, but, you know, the, just because of the carry, this is actually pretty, yeah, this is actually pretty awkward. Uh, so you, you probably, you know, timing wise, it feels like we're not quite, quite there. Like the, bi the, the flattening bias probably can't, the inversion, probably can't go much more. So, you, you know, I don't think this is the time you want to necessarily massively bet either way. But obviously the next move will be the steepening because at this point, everyone's ready for it. Everyone's talking about it. And it's, I think it's a little bit along the lines of you're trying to balance when, when people start front running it. Um, and even, similarly, even for the duration point, right? Like it's really obviously only going to really move once it's really obvious the economy's in the tank and the Fed's going to cut. And it feels like we're going to, it's going to take a few months uh, through Q1 for that to become obvious, right? For the Fed to talk about inflation peaking, for the Fed to tell you the peak policy is in, right? Uh, you know, this is, um, you know, I do find myself going back a little, quite a lot to this, um, this macro analog we put back in June, right? We use the dynamic time warped analog finder to highlight the 84 analogy, right? Where, you know, again, it's, it's not bad, right? You need inflation to peak, but that's done. We've had the bond and equity crash together, that's done. The last piece is just you need the Fed to tell you it's a peak policy, and then the whole curve will sell off, and then and then you're kind of good again. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the that's the thing where I think overall, like hiding, you know, going to fixed income, picking up the yield, having that safety clearly makes sense. You know, if you have to pick between further inversion or steepening from here, it, it's probably steepening. But the timing, um, given the carry is, you probably do need to wait at some point, uh, beginning of next year, right, for for that trade to probably um really makes sense um yeah we covered energy you know that's probably the relic i think it's just to us there's a lot of the structural and fundamental setup still pretty attractive right in terms of inventory drawdown and, and things like that so i think that's one area it feels pretty prime but looking down asset allocation i still think my biggest concern is that the dollar is going to behave differently that's like a big um that'll be a big concern and obviously if you don't get the dollar strengthening further that at the margin also it, you know it should support <laughs> support the U.S. economy in the margin a bit as well, right? So I think that that's a little bit of the unknown uh, in terms of behavior this time. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's it, right? Unless there's any other questions, I think we'll just leave it out. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, 40 minutes into the call. Um, thank you, everyone, for dialing in this month. Um, and we'll see you back in the new year in January. Thanks very much. All right, thank you.